Black men make up the lowest rung of all social markers or most social markers in this country from the shortest lives, most likely to be suspended or expelled from school, overcharged, oversentenced, overrepresented in the prison population, underemployed. If we are employed, a white man with a felony conviction is more likely to be hired than a black man with a college degree. So this is the lived experience that it is to be a black man in this country. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Mondale Robinson, an activist working to encourage black men to regularly and actively engage in the voting and electoral process. He is the founding principal at the Black Male Voter Project. His organization successfully helped activate thousands of longtime non-voters, making him one of the many people we need to thank for our recent narrow wins in Georgia in the presidential and Senate runoff elections. Mondale has been fighting for equity his whole life. I really enjoyed learning about his path to building his organization, how they do what they do, and why he thinks his process is more effective than some traditional campaign tactics. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mondale Robinson of the Black Male Voter Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Oh, man, absolutely. I am Mundell Robinson, the founder of Black Male Voter Project. As it pertains to my origins, both with politics and also uh, this earth, they're both connected. So it's an easy story to tell. I am a, a black man born in 1979 in eastern North Carolina. It matters that I say the time and location because so many people bought into the idea that North Carolina was a progressive South if they even considered the South at all. And also 1979 is important because people believe that time, Jim Crow and all of its you know, vestiges were over. Yet and still, I grew up in a time where white power was ever present. Uh, my mother used to tell me stories all the time. Um, not just me, all of my siblings, I'm one of 13, used to tell us stories all the time about the white man that sprayed her with the fire hose because she was downtown after the sun went down when she was eight and 19 years old with her sisters. They didn't just tell her, they were so brave that they would tell her grandmother who was her custodian that you need to keep your little black child. And of course they use different words than black child from downtown because the next time she might not be so lucky. And I remember those stories as a child um, because my mother used to try to smile through them and it was a fake smile, not her normal smile. Coupled with the guy that she married, who's her husband and my father, telling me stories about uh, him being, you know, the son of a sharecropper. My grandfather was a sharecropper and how my father got his first felony was on the plantation. Um, they call it a sharecropping farm, but it was a plantation for sure. He reacted to one of the sharecroppers, the person who owned the farm, he reacted to one of his sons smacking my grandmother and knocking her off the porch. His reaction almost got him killed. My family had to run him to Virginia and hide him for a couple years. And when he came back, uh, they didn't kill him, but they gave him a felony conviction and locked him up. Being black, born in 1979 in North Carolina, in the rural part of that state, handicapped by my mother's eighth grade education, my dad's third grade education, and all of their the proverbial baggage they carried from poverty and my dad's criminal record at an early age, basically um, ensured that I would, I would have a childhood that was laced with uh, a lot of sad and poor moments. And that's what it was. But instead of, you know, uh, this breaking me, it actually made me, my mother and my father's story uh, were my marching orders 
me trying to figure out how my dad was so great yet and still this country seemed to have robbed him of anything even the ability to provide for his family on most days um, led me to believe that there would have to be a better way and I began to fight you know for equity at an early age I left Infield, North Carolina, to join the Marine Corps, not because I had some nationalistic calling or some certain surge of patriotism, but instead I just needed to escape poverty and it was the easiest way out, especially since no one in my family had ever been to college and could never tell me how to navigate those systems. So I joined the Marine Corps, did that for a while, a uh, short period. I, I knew very early on that the Marine Corps is not where I was going to make social change happen because it's not a place for thinkers, it's a place for people who can follow orders to the T. And I questioned everything. So after that, you know, I, I left the Marine Corps and joined uh, the world, the real world. And I began to do politics, but not in a traditional way. I began to figure out where I wanted to go through, you know, reading books and what candidate I wanted to work for. And instead of working for that candidate directly, I would just go to black communities and do work uh, and engage in black voters about the election, not the candidate themselves. And what I found out was I began to amass a bunch of data that said that there's no such thing as sporadic voters or, or low information voters. It's voters that are not targeted, but when you target them, they turn out. So I turned that into an organization that became Black Male Voters Project. And I'm certain we're going to talk about that now, but that's a kind of a brief introduction to who I am. I'm sure it's only touching on the story uh, in the complexity of life, right? Tell me a little bit more about your education, because I thought I had gleaned that you had picked up some significant education that you didn't mention along the way. Yeah, so I have college degrees. I don't talk about them because they didn't prepare me for the world. Um, that Those are, even at the HBCUs I attended, uh, Livingstone, I also went to Alabama A&M. They didn't prepare me for, for this world, not like poverty did. And unfortunately, in Western society, we don't reward people who can survive poverty with PhDs, but we should, or, or MBAs, because uh, that's the education that made me prepared for political space. I do have a political science degree from Livingstone and started law school in Arkansas. I didn't finish because it was in my last semester of law school, realized that it was a trade school for sure. And in divinity school at Wake Forest. But the education, uh, it's all trickery. I feel like it's trickery in that it prepares us for a life that Western society tells us is, is, is successful. I was on a mission for something different. And, and all the lessons that, you know, learning new people when I traveled around this world and interacting with uh, the, least amongst the, the least amongst us and living my childhood was the best education that prepared me for how to address my political work, how to... Uh, uh, show up in these political spaces and what's at stake when I do sacrifice anything, if I sacrifice. Well, when you talked about getting into political work and getting into black communities not connected to candidates, how were you able to make a living doing that? How did you find a way to both put foot on the table and be active politically? I made a drastic decision early on in life, brother. And that decision was that I, I said my God didn't put me here uh, to be a father in, in the traditional sense, meaning I would not have kids. I told myself that early on because I was committed to this work. So at 23, I had a vasectomy. So I would have one mouth. I would be responsible for one mouth. And most of the time, uh, what happened was through my savings and odd jobs, I was able to, you know, just move around kind of like a nomad. And, and then that's how my political life began, me being a nomad. And then I, uh, I winded up in, in Western North Carolina, of all places, the most conservative part of North Carolina. The 10th Congressional District in North Carolina is one of the most conservative districts throughout the South. In 2007, 2008, I was there uh, organizing uh, for this, this, this skinny black guy named Barack Obama. You might have heard of him. I wasn't working for the campaign, but I was doing what I normally do, just organizing people around the work and the necessity of the moment. I ended up amassing a, a, a near army in Hickory, North Carolina. We had a, an entire, you know, volunteer-led organization that was doing more canvassing, meaning knocking on doors, uh, voter registration, uh, than any any paid office in the state. So Obama had no no ideas that he was going to open an office in Hickory, North Carolina, but it was so much work being done there that the Charlotte Observer came to Hickory and interviewed me and talked about some of the stuff we were doing, voter registrations uh, at the community college, organizing, having events in in, in the housing projects and, and engaging black people around our issues. 
you know, they had to send a staffer down there. So they sent a staffer, one staffer down there and realized that we had two or three satellite offices. So it ended up having in Catawba County and the surrounding areas, almost five or six uh, staffers in, in, in each office. Because of the work that we were doing in the primary, uh, Hickory was blessed with visits from Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and the Republican candidates. It was an interesting time to, you know, be in, in, engaged in politics and brought me back to North Carolina. And that was the first time I got involved in any, like, working for a candidate directly. For a very brief time, I was the first chair for Veterans for Obama in North Carolina. I didn't do it long because uh, that was not my cup of tea. Um, their way of organizing was very traditional. I have a disdain for the traditional way of campaigning because it does nothing but it reelect uh, incumbents or maintain the status quo, neither of which I was interested in. Well, tell me a little bit more about your your theory of campaigning then. Talk about Hickory, for example. What were you doing? What was working? What are the kind of conversations you're having? How are you doing that kind of organizing? So I, I'm basically organizing around life, and it looked just like life. So uh, this is with no political campaign training. This is just me understanding people and being from a large family, knowing how to navigate that space. I did a lot of listening, really. Um, what I learned in my later in my life to be called one-on-one conversations. And what I found out was people already had the solutions to what was ailing them. They didn't need a poll to tell them what was the most popular issue to them. Um, and especially, this is especially true for people who are starving, both physically and also proverbially. What we did was we just began to talk about the issues that was plaguing Hickory and tying it into uh, the importance of the presidential election and what it meant to elect someone who was talking about a better way to look at uh, Medicare, a better way to think about the environment in local terms and how it applied to people's lives. So we, we created a, a way of campaigning that was more about what was going on locally centering these issues and not Barack Obama himself. And in doing that, we began to meet new people, people that the world that I would later learn people that the world called low information voters. We would talk to them about the political process, those who were not apathetic to the political process, but they had a level of antipathy that the current political structure infrastructure don't speak to. So we begin to speak to that, that, that letter of uh, antipathy. That level of antipathy is real. And for black people, it was grounded in 150 years of voter suppression and 400 years of, of life suppression or oppression. And we begin to address that, not that campaigns electing Barack Obama would be the end all be all, but this would be another tool for us to, to edge us closer to liberation, true liberation, where we weren't dying or we weren't, weren't dying from not having health insurance, or we weren't dying uh, from police officers who weren't being held accountable, or that we could at least have a president that would have a, a justice department where that would issue consent decrees when there was a, a habit forming within police departments that said black lives didn't matter. So, you know, having conversations in this manner engaged people in things that were plaguing them on a daily basis. And without polls, without money for polls, without any uh, staffers, uh, we were we were on our way to creating the program we use at Black Male Voter Project now. Of course, I couldn't have seen that then, but definitely uh, looking back now, it's it's definitely the, uh, the root of this work that we do now. There does feel like there's often a really big distance between regular politics as it's conducted and life as it's lived. I think that you've put your finger on that. What do you think is that distance? That distance uh, is... The $2 billion plus dollars that they spend every election cycle, consultants have convinced politicians, elected officials, and also the parties that running ads is the way to win elections, when in actuality, we know every year that ads are the least effective way to reach out to voters. So we do these polls, these quick flash polls of people these people don't even represent America, really, because uh, not all of America anyway, because what you're doing is you're calling people who always vote, which is a chicken or egg situation anyway, because the same studies that show you that vote running ads is the least effective way to campaign also tells you that the most effective way to turn out voters is to spend resources. The more resources you spend on voting and their issues, the more likely you are to turn them into voters. When we have campaigns that are spending 70 percent of two billion dollars on ads targeting one type of voter, conservative-leaning white voters, and that's both parties, then you, you you create this disconnect where the people that are the least amongst us are not heard, are not living, are not seeing themselves in the living 
politics of this country. So what happens is if you pay attention close enough, you can hear the, the elimination of people. When you see so many people in this country that are poor, no politicians are talking about poverty or people living in poverty. Everybody's talking about the middle class or the working class or the working poor. I argue that the middle class in this country is almost a myth now. There's no middle class. The gap divide in this country is as big as Brazil, if not larger, um, from the have and the have nots. And that is not that is not a good thing. So, but when, when when our politics reflect all this middle class, so many people don't see themselves in it. In, in politics in the way it's presented. That's in large part, that's because of the amount of money spent on consultants and not voters. When did you start Black Male Voter Project? As an entity, Black Male Voter Project is a little over a year old, but the Black Male Voter Project, it was a, uh, a project, meaning I used to, I had a consultant firm and I would do the work of Black Male Voter Project for a lot of different organizations that you probably heard of um, all over the country. Uh, when did that start? Oh man, that started um, six, seven cycles ago. So yeah, six or seven years ago. After the Obama, yeah, after work. the Obama, after yeah. the Obama incident, I did a, I did a couple years of IE work, um, where I was tinkering with uh, the BMEP editorial approach, which is the way of campaigning that we do at Black Male Voter Project. Tinkering with that, mastering it, and then I just started taking my uh, the data that I had that I own, and you know, getting jobs with the candidates that I believe in. Um, and running the BMEP editor approach, and not just candidates, but also issues and working with those. So tell me a little bit about those six, approximately six election cycles. Where were you in the country? I mean, I, I've seen from your website that you worked in a bunch of states. Where were you? How are you growing? How are you fitting into the ecosystem? Tell me about the trajectory of your approach and your, and your organization over time. Those six years were basically me uh, mastering the BMEP editory approach. And it took me everywhere. I mean, I was in North Carolina doing work for um, organizations. Sierra Club wanted to launch a their C4. I ran their first C4 uh, program in the country, but I was in North Carolina and I was in, with rural voters. They wanted, to, I, they wanted to test my model against a traditional model that another, another organization was using in Charlotte. And what we did was they gave me sporadic voters in Eastern North Carolina, which is where a majority of the black voters are in that state. We were able to talk about local issues and get interest uh, around environmental issues, but in local context, not in not in ice caps in, in, in Greenland, and to get black voters uh, engaged around those issues and also increase their participation. How did you do versus the traditional model in that? We, we, we all performed them. Not too surprising, right? Not not surprising at all. I mean, and you're going to hear that as a reoccurring, not 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 because I'm bragging, but because I want people to know that you know the traditional campaigning is a reason that we only have, uh, you know, small portion. We consider sixty percent of people voting a good thing. It's because of the type of campaigning we do in this country. So I mean, I did work for a power pack power pack organization uh, through Marvin Randolph. They would never come to North Carolina or. Georgia, they would just tell me they needed a program. I would build that program, a data-driven program using the BMEP approach in North Carolina, in Georgia uh, for several cycles. I worked with them. My thing is I didn't want to be in large spaces where everybody was touching the same voters. I wanted to talk to the voters that nobody else was talking to because it provided a clean data for me to compare uh, these voters who don't normally vote with voters that uh, everybody's talking to that always vote. There was an organization in Florida called FRRC, Florida's Rights Restoration Coalition, they were fighting for Amendment 4 with the Desmond Mead. I built their organizing department using the BMEP editorial approach for them. And they passed Amendment 4 down there uh, as one of the most successful ballot initiatives in this country, given our returning citizens, people formerly incarcerated, the right to vote back. That was some, I did all of the field work for Think Rubis Woke Vote program in 2018. So uh, all of this, all of this is the work that I was doing uh, in going to what people call the lowest performing voters, people who had from zero to 45 propensity level, meaning they likely were not going to turn out for the election and nobody else was targeting them. And I was talking to them about issues that were most important to them. And I knew these were the issues most important to them, not because of a political poster or a campaign or a candidate, but because my first interactions with them were not me talking at them, but instead me asking them five questions. What's most important to you? What's missing from your community? Who are the leaders in your communities? who should be the leaders in your community and what's necessary to make your community whole. 
And from those information, we built, we would build programs that spoke to those issues for those voters. And, and we told the truth about elections not being the end all be all, but a tool, another tool to help us get closer to liberation. So, and, and what I found out was um, all of that was great, but I was doing something wrong. And I found out what that wrong was. And when I found out what that wrong was, it was because of some of the classes I took when I was in divinity school. And that, those classes were psychology classes. So not being pathological about any school of thought in psychology, but using some of the lessons learned from two types of psychology, we were able to fix what was wrong and tweak what was wrong in our program. I shouldn't say fix, tweak what was wrong in our program and to make it as successful as a model as it is now. And those first two things were we took some of the lessons from Maslow hierarchy of needs that said uh, people that don't have their basic needs met can't think about things that are self-actualization. So. If you consider black men, for instance, black men make up the lowest rung of all social markers or most social markers in this country from the shortest lives, most likely to be suspended or expelled from school, most likely to be put in special needs classes, overcharged, oversentenced, overrepresented in the prison population, underemployed. If we are employed, a white man with a felony conviction is more likely to be hired than a black man with a college degree. So this is the lived experience that it is to be a black man in this country. So recognizing that we are a transient population with, that don't have our basic needs met, it is illogical to believe that we can think about voting in traditional sense. You know, where you come to my house two months before an election cycle with the proverbial chicken or fried or the church fan and tell us that this candidate is gonna save our life or this election is the most important election. It didn't ring true to people who were making life and death decisions on a daily basis. So uh, we took those lessons, we began to work on methods that would move voting from self-actualization down closer to a way to address what was ailing uh, people who didn't have their basic needs met. And the way we moved them was behavior psychology, you know, providing positive, interactions or feedback uh, around certain things and certain interactions. And, and doing that, we moved voting down that, that pyramid, Maslow's pyramid, closer to a tool that could help address some of those issues that were plaguing black men. That sounds very smart. In doing that and in making those changes to how you were talking to people, do you find that that was happening uh, in your understanding in other places around the country with other activists and activist groups and organizers? I think our program is extremely unique in that, you know, we use two types of science and neither one of them are political science <laughs> to engage black men. It's the uh, psychology from Maslow and the behavior psychology. I, I would say it's absolutely unique in that, especially when you couple the fact that we're only talking to black men. I tell people that, you know, I talk to black men because it was a no-brainer for me because I kept hearing white consultants in my political life say things that didn't ring true to me or didn't make sense as it pertains to how you should motivate or engage black men, both from my work, but also anecdotally because I engage with a lot of black men, um, my brothers, uncles, cousins, and fathers, and friends as well. I started it almost as a data-driven cry for help for black men in the political space, um, and I didn't see anyone else doing that, uh, especially for black men. Now I do know that there are other organizations that are running cultural appropriate uh, organizing, but when it comes to creating a program that's based on those lessons, those particular lessons from Maslow hierarchy of needs and also using behavior psychology to move, uh, move voting down the uh, pyramid closer to a tool to address uh, the lack of basic needs being met, I know for a fact that is something that is uniquely Black Male Voter Project and more specifically the BMEP additory approach that I created. You've mentioned this term BMEP additory approach. I saw it on your website. I've got a sense of what you mean by it, by what you've said already, and but explain what is going on there. What I've been talking to you about, the way we engage, the initial conversation is part of it. It is based in those two types of psychology. And also our, our, our interaction with brothers are not based on election calendars. We have interactions with brothers uh, year round about their issues and our conversations begin not as political conversations and they're never in traditional political spaces. So we have these conversations that are close to anybody that's not a black man. And they're usually the beginning of our interaction with the community. So you, there are no cameras, there are no women, there are no white people, there are no, there are no Latinx brothers and sisters, no AAPI brothers and sisters, or non-gender conforming people, just black men, just black men. 
And in that space, uh, we overpopulate the room with uh, drug dealers, gang members, people who don't traditionally vote. And then we allow a couple of uh, elected officials or people who are like myself, political savvy. But they're only in the room, those those political consultants or the elected officials, only to see how wrong uh, the political space is about what it means to be black men. And these are black men themselves, but they've been in the political system so long, they they've bought into this the narrative of posters or whatever. And we, we begin to have real conversations about what it means to be black men and what it means to be a political creature, not in a traditional sense, almost like you see the party trying to have barbershop conversations uh, on camera with uh, with mixed company. So our conversations are like real barbershop conversations, meaning uh, real barbershop conversations only happen when there are only black men in the room. So we have those conversations. And from there, we built our platform. We went around the country and had 4,000 black men participated in our Brothers Be Voting conversations. And what we did was we built a platform of, of the three most popular issues out of those conversations. And it was easy because those issues were overwhelmingly the same issues in the 17 states that we operate in. And from there, we began to engage brothers in, in their spaces, nightclubs, uh, at their doors, in their barbershops. In all spaces where black men on the corner, we weren't talking about politics. Initially, we were asking those five questions I talked to you about earlier. What's missing from your community? What's necessary to make you whole? Gathering information and from that information, coupling it with those three issues and then uh, having five or six conversations before we began to correct any information we got from them in the initial conversations, meaning we would just listen. If you didn't say anything that was outlandish, we wouldn't correct it in the first five or six conversations because it was our job just to be there to gather information. But on the sixth or seventh conversation, when we came back to engage with brothers, it was different. Like, yo, man, you told me something the second time or the third time I was over here. Or you told somebody from the or something the third time. And man, we did some research and that just wasn't true. What we found out was we were able to push back on brothers, uh, even those who didn't play politics at all. Um, because because to them, a couple of things had just happened. Somebody remembered something that they told them three or four weeks ago. And also we were listening and we did we cared about it so much that we we did research on it and brought back a real answer. And from there, um, after those, you know, those first two phases, we begin to use what looks like traditional campaigning, meaning we started persuading brothers uh, into the idea that voting could be used as a tool. And from the persuading model uh, using behavior psychology, we would move them down further down the ladder. So you would go from persuasion to turnout, from turnout to uh, follow up. And then our cycle just starts over and over again. So where normal campaigns talk to super voters about three or four times, a super voter is someone who votes every election cycle. Our campaign talked to black men 11 to 13 times in election cycle directly, not to mention other interactions through our social media platforms, the ads we create on social media and also in nightclubs, in barbershops and in other spaces as well. When you're talking about we we had these conversations. Are you talking about you or are you talking about you and a team? Black Male Voter Project is a, is a, it's an organization. Uh, we have over the cycle, we probably hired more than 200 people, but our permanent staff is a lot smaller than that. But yeah, it's a team of us. And so you've trained your team in this BMEP additory approach. My team is experts on BMEP additive approach. However, the brothers be voting are intricate spaces that take time to, uh, like, you know, to be the right type of moderator in those spaces. So I, I still attend. I, I attend all of those meetings just because they are they are so intricate to how we introduce ourselves to a community and also how they set the tone on what the work we're going to do in community. So I'm at all of those. Tell me about how you've interfaced with other organizations that are campaigning, like. I saw you were active in, in the recent Georgia elections and some of the organizations there have gotten pretty famous uh, that are doing good work. How do you fit in among what was going on? We're the kid in the playground that is not, we're not the popular kid, the most popular kid, but we're the kid that can do things that other folk can't do. So people are awe and wowing at the work. And, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, if you look at the number of black men in this country, uh, that have not voted in six consecutive federal elections before 2020 election. Uh, it was nearly half of the black men that were registered to vote fell into that category. Georgia was no different. 
That number was 460,000 black men in Georgia that were registered to vote since before 2008 that had not voted in a single primary initially, right? What we did was we engaged those brothers and we were able to turn out 144,000 of those black men. These are black men who did not vote for Barack Obama in the primary in 2008, 12. They didn't vote for Stacey Abrams in 2018 and nor did they vote in any other election in any primary between 2008 and 2018. But we were able to turn them out this cycle. And then in the general election, we targeted those population again. And again, out of that 460,000 black men that had not voted in six consecutive elections, we were able to turn out 104,000 in the general election. That's 10 times the number um, that Biden won that state by. So we're that kid that can almost do magic, <laughs> uh, not magic because it's hard work, but on the playground, we're the kid that people say, all right. Um, and I mean, we have, we have good relationships with organizations. We are members of the C4 table that's ran by America Votes. So we partner with those organizations. We provide uh, interactions with them about how to engage or, or if they should engage with black men in certain issues or around certain issues. Um, we're also part of, you know, the DA and Sheriff Small Working Group, or part of the legislative working group. We do a lot of uh, immigration work with our Latinx brothers and sisters because it's important. Of course, uh, black women issues. I think for the most part, though, we try to stay in our space ourselves because our program is so different with the work that we're doing, the BMEP additory approach. Uh, it's extremely intricate in how we run it, um, and we, we are serious about it and how we expand it. So even when we have volunteers, we don't let volunteers talk to black men. We create universes of voters that we think are you know, more likely to support uh, black men issues, uh, meaning the new American majority, as Steve Phillips called them. Um, so progressive white people uh, and black and brown women and men for the other races, but not black men. And we, we let our volunteers interact with them as it pertains to talking to black men. That's just the work that we do. If you're hiring in excess of 200 people, you must be getting funding. Who's helping you with that? We were definitely um, getting funding this cycle. Um, there was a wonderful uh, group of, of people uh, individuals and also organizations that supported us. We are a C4 organization, so some people may not want to be recognized, but I'll, I'll, I'll name America Votes supported us significantly. Uh, the founder of Home Depot and, and Atlanta Falcons owner, Mr. Blank, supported us through his foundation. Rural Democracy Initiative supported us heavily. Progress Georgia did work supporting us. Georgia Alliance supported us. Friends of Earth supported us. Uh, move on. Xander Schultz through win both seats through defeat by tweet did a significant support. Movement Voter Project supported us significantly. The Women's Donor Network supported us. I feel like calling names is so dangerous because you may forget someone. These are important validation of people understanding that what you're doing is valuable. I've talked to Wimsat at movement voter project for example and i've talked to you know i've talked to a, a number of these groups that are funders it's not easy to get money to do political work i mean you i'm sure you had to hustle it was definitely a hustle um i think what's the saving grace for black male voter project was that me being a data nerd and me wanting to make sure when we launched um that our data was in order and and the the, uh, the technique of the proven track record for other organizations and then also the work the work itself spoke for itself, especially after the primary. After the primary, people saw it and it was like, okay, wow. And then, and it wasn't just it wasn't just Georgia's primary. It's what we did in Kentucky primary. Uh, it's what we did in uh, New York 16th with Jamal Bowman. It's what we did in the states we were in in general. So, yeah. I think on uh, most political people's minds, if they're not thinking about the craziness of Trump, they're thinking about the Senate, the two Senate races that we just won uh, narrowly in Georgia. How were we able to pull that off? The truth of the matter is not how are we. The truth of the matter is why did it take so long? 
And that's the true story that no one is talking about. And part of that is because of our our desire on the progressive side to have a savior. We have a savior complex on our side. It's always a personality that we want to reward. A single personality has to be responsible for this. And I think that's the tragedy of it. We don't give credence to the ideas or the techniques that really won or win for us. And what happens is we start following personalities and letting that that personality be where we rest our bets on instead of like what tactics work, what tactics didn't work. The way we were able to get here is because of, in spite of our candidates, you know, we were able to engage voters uh, in a way that we've never in- engaged before. There was $800 million spent on that runoff, and majority of it left the state with the white consultants that, that brought it in or or that came to the state because of it, right? There were people, there were so many new organizations on the ground in Georgia during the runoff that it was it was almost head spinning trying to learn the names of all of these urban ground game, ground game. There were so many new organizations popping up and I was just like, where were you all in 2014, 2012, you know, how could you not know that we, this transactional nature of traditional campaigns is the killer of voter expansion. This is where our editory approach, the editory part of the BMEP comes in. We we are all about expanding the electorate. You can't do that if you're coming in on a transaction nature, because by default, you're rushing people to do something that you don't have the right to ask them to do. And that's not successful. So I think the way that we were able to get to this runoff how we were able to turn out black men and black women to those organizations working on that in a rate that was higher than a presidential election. We turned out more voters in the runoff in January than we did in the November general election. Uh, and the way we did that is because of engagement and long-term relationships that, that were, that were built on not this, the urgency of now, but instead they were built on, years and years of trust and also a program that didn't center for black men specifically a program that didn't center personalities not even the black man that was running but instead where we want to plant our seeds and who we want to fight against do you feel like you were in a certain way at cross purposes with people on the team who are just doing it the wrong way this transactional way that you're talking about do you think that some of that was like more hurtful than helpful? Absolutely. A lot of it. I mean, even even the candidates were doing things that were hurtful for us. Uh, right after the general election, we watched uh, Ossoff basically just disrespect not just black men, but progressive voters in general. He went to HBO and did a um, a round robin session with, um, I think it's called Axiom or some show on HBO. They just told him to say yes or no on very important issues. And then they just call out an issue. And if he supported, say yes. If he didn't support it, say no. And, you know, so the first issue they said was defund the police. And he said, no, without thinking about it. I mean, there were three or four black men, uh, high profile murders of black men in Georgia this year or 2020. So that year watching him be so flipping with that issue was the height of disrespect for people who had just put him in a runoff and now just sent him to the Senate as the first Jewish uh, senator from Georgia. The Green New Deal was another question. He said no. And it was just almost as if he was saying I don't need these people. Um, I'm trying to court uh, a different demographic. And then Warnock did the same thing in a sense, if you think about the fact that he was running an ad with seven police officers, seven police officers, and just him. So it was him and seven police officers. And a Republican attack against him was uh, Reverend Warnock supports defunding the police. And he was like, his ad was, I don't support defund the police. I support the police. And it's just like police are killing black men in a way that we should have a, no, a more nuanced conversation than you feel comfortable as a black man to put seven police, seven different police officers in seven different uniforms up there speaking on your behalf and not ever offering the fact that we do need to address how black men are dying at alarming rates um, from police officers. And if you are a certain age black man, it is one of the leading causes of death. So we won in spite of candidates and their tactics. And then on top of that, we had some national organizations that had great proximity to white money. So they were able to raise a bunch of money and just come to Georgia and, and, and show up in a very toxic way. And some of these organizations were black organizations or black led organizations, and they showed up in very toxic ways. There were Christmas Eve. I have on, on my Facebook, people were crying out because some of these organizations weren't paying them. 
Um, these people didn't have paychecks on Christmas Eve to, to get Christmas for their children. So we had to take money out of Black Male Voters Project budget. Kimberlyn Carter over at Rep Georgia also was one another 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 person who helped me pay some of these people that other people weren't paying. These weren't my canvassers, but they, they were black canvassers. And that definitely does a horrible thing to the to the ethos, the political ethos for black people. It makes it harder for us to say you can trust political work or you can trust us as organizations because all those people will remember is if we hadn't take care of it, if we haven't remedied it, all those people will remember is on Christmas Eve, 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, I was doing some political work that you're asking me to do and I didn't get paid. So we had to we had to take care of that. So yeah, some of the people that say they were on our side definitely did harm that, that made this race closer than it had to be. How would you advise a candidate like either of those Senate candidates to deal with a question like the Green New Deal or defund police where there's going to be somebody in among the voters that you want who is going to be unhappy with whichever way you answer that unless you have the time to really explain it, right? How would you handle that? That's the exact way to answer it. First, you need to, you need to do the, the calculus. Are you trying to win an election? And if you are trying to win an election, then you need to be talking to voters that's going to more likely to support you. Speaking to the defund the police argument is centering whiteness when you don't need to, uh, especially in Georgia, if you consider the fact that uh, Reverend Warnock was not likely, John Ossoff was not likely to lose any Democrats or black voters for saying that they support defund the police or at least willing to have a conversation about all the resources, the over-resourcing of police officers and institutions in that state. However, they also, by saying that they don't support defund the police, they didn't win any conservative voters either. This idea from the consultant class telling candidates that you need to court conservative-leaning white voters is grounded in something older than both of these candidates' political career. It's grounded in the white Southern strategy where you can prioritize you know, whiteness over or at the expense of black people and still win. But that's not the case. I would tell them if you don't have the time to have a real conversation about Green New Deal, um, which is an issue that is a no-brainer for me because the environment is the environment and we need to take care of it, or, or defund the police because... Well, it's overfunded. Our police officers are driving around in tanks and they have equipment that's made for military personnel. And I, I don't think that makes any sense at all. And we also have seen that over-policing is not the cure for what's plaguing us. It's addressing poverty if you really want to be serious. I think if you don't have time to have these conversations, then don't have them. Yeah. Have, have you heard of something called the Million Dollar Block Project? a visualization of how much we were spending on incarceration by city block. And there are blocks where we're spending more than a million dollars a year to keep people in prison. And we're allergic to putting anything like that kind of resource into the causes that are sending people down those roads. Yes. That was in uh, Columbia, I think, did it in concert with a couple other organizations, great organizations, uh, Justice Mapping and other organizations. So yeah, I mean, you know, the data that comes from the million dollar block is powerful. It's also common sense if, we, if we're being honest with ourselves. Let me say something to you. Black men are a minority of a minority of a minority population, right? Of the percentage of the population in this country. But there are more black men in prison in the United States than all of Chinese prison population. That's crazy. China has more than a billion people. The same is true as for India. You can couple the next five or six countries together and you still can't reach the number of black men that are in prison in this country. So that was my only critique of the million dollar block is that they weren't explicit in calling it a pandemic against black men, even though the work itself said that and it articulated, uh, but they use ge geographical locations to articulate it. I think it could have been made clear by speaking to the fact that this is another death for black men, the prison system. When you're having these conversations that are all, all black men in the room or wherever you're talking to them, to what extent are they hearing political messaging that's coming from, say, Trump world or... Trump is unpopular as hell with black men. I, I'm certain he is, but I just mean generally across political messaging coming from both sides. Is any of that reaching average people that you're talking to? No. I mean, black men don't hear 
the Democrats' message or Trump's message. They didn't hear the Democrats or Trump's message. It doesn't speak to their lived experience. I think this is a misnomer, even for, this is how we know Barack Obama interaction with black men is so wholesale and so cheap that, you know, that he can go on TV uh, in 2020 and say something like, oh, black men's attraction to uh, Donald Trump is because of rap music um, and he's flashy and they like flashy thing. And it's like, that makes no sense at all because since Donald Trump became a politician, there's not been one positive rap song about him. Before Donald Trump was president, when he was doing whatever he was doing in business, that's a different story. The minute he ran for president and black men thought he was being taken serious, there was a song called FTP and it was F Donald Trump written by Nipsey Hussle and YG. And that became a sentiment. That was 2015. So black men was on F Donald Trump before the rest of America was. And there's not been one positive song about Donald Trump in rap music since. So the idea that two or three black men represent the entirety of us is a failure that so many people try to portray. Donald Trump messaging doesn't resonate with black men. It's also, it plays into this idea that black men can't think for themselves or we can't think logically. Black men are living in Trump's America. Black men know and hear everything Trump is saying about black people. When he said asshole countries, those are our ancestors too. It is this idea that black men don't have the ability to be, to be. I'm talking about in a Shakespeare sense, to be. My height in, in voice and tension level is not with your questioning. It's more with how the world has portrayed black men and Trump because these posters said we were going to show up 20% and vote 20% 20 to 25% for Trump when in actuality Trump failed where he, where he failed in 2016 as one of the lowest performing presidents for black people where black people always fall. Well, I think we are truly terrible at measuring that subset of the population politically. The way exit polls are conducted, the way a lot of things that lead to these estimates of subgroups, they're not getting good data. Right. There's a language barrier that people don't admit. Black men don't speak politics. A great example of this is when I was in Brunswick doing the Brothers Be Voting there. The brothers in the room, I mean, 75 brothers in there from that from Brunswick. And one young brother says to me, this is right after Ahmaud Arbery was killed before national media got a hold of it. One of the brothers said to me, Ahmaud Arbery's best friend said to me, we need more public safety. And it blew my mind. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you need more public safety? Ahmaud Arbery had just been killed. And in political context, public safety is we need more cops. Everybody in that room looked at me like I had three heads because nobody in that room thought public safety meant we need more cops. To them, public safety meant they should be able to drive down the street and not get nervous when blue lights come on behind them. If their kids are in trouble, they should feel comfortable calling the police. One person said it this way, we should be policed like white people are policed. Think about that. Now, if black people were policed like white people were policed, that is the definition of defunding the police because white people are policed a lot less, which will require a lot less funds. That's defunding the police by definition. But if a poster would have called his brother and asked, oh, what do you think we need? And he would have said, we need more public safety. And that conversation would have ended there because they're not asking deep conversations. Then they would have went back that black men in Brunswick, Georgia are conservative people when in actuality they're not at all. They're screaming for to being police like white people are police, which means they're screaming for less funding for police. What do you think is the other biggest misconception about black men in politics? That we are apathetic population, that we are uh, apolitical, um, when in actuality we are, we are the product of the first voter suppression guinea pigs. If you think about the 15th Amendment supposedly gave us the right to vote black men making us the second demographic after white men with the right to vote. Um, but anybody believing that black men got the right to vote at the 15th Amendment and it was sustained is living in a world that's fanciful to me. We have a level of hate and, and everything that black men suffer through is a political issue. People address us as if we are apathetic, meaning we're nonchalant about politics, when in actuality, we're not nonchalant at all. There's a level of antipathy. We hate the way politics is presented in this country because it's transactional and it's, it doesn't ring true to what we're living through and what we're dealing with. And I think those two things are 
the biggest misnomer about black men in politics. Makes sense. What else are you up to? I've seen that, you know, you're making appearances in sort of radio podcast world. What else is taking your time? It's my job to create more civically engaged black men uh, in America. And I think part of that is addressing black men holistically. So um, we're also in the process of opening up or trying to work with parole and probation systems in the 17 states we exist in to create a trade school, which is one of the top three issues for black men, coding included, and also working with uh, some divinity schools to make, you know, see if we can get a, a divinity certificate or so that brothers coming out of uh, the incarceration system can, instead of the parole and probation boards, forcing them to go get these jobs that don't really satisfy or allow them to live full lives, to come to one of our BMEP trade schools, vocational schools, and learn how to code or do do trades uh, and also learn entrepreneur skills so they can start businesses and then not only give back to their communities, be a part of their communities and provide uh, incomes for their family and themselves. So that is in its infancy stage, but that is taking a lot of my time right now, building out these schools and seeing what that network looks like. That sounds really important and interesting. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? What would I be doing if there was if equity was a part of this world? Oh, wow. We're a long way off from true equity, aren't we? What would yeah. you be doing? I would be building furniture for homeless people out of recycled pallets. You did a little of that at one point, right? Yeah, I like doing that. What is it that you like about that? I, I like building furniture myself. It is understanding that wood comes from trees. Trees take in bad air. And so there should never be a piece of wood that's wasted. Um, this is my thinking. There should never be a piece of wood that's wasted. So when a pallet, which carries so much weight, is done being a pallet, it should become a bed or a dresser or, or a bookshelf um, for folk who don't have. Maybe you need to start a side business in employing people, helping you make pallet-based furniture. I bet you could get a billion pallets. When I was in law school, I did that a lot. I built furniture for black and brown students who didn't have beds. I would build beds. Sounds actually very fulfilling to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mondale, it's been a real honor to talk to you today. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so diligent and uh, patient with me. I appreciate that. It's been well worth it. That was Mondale Robinson. Mondale is at blackmalevoterproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.